This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS politics of the United States. This week, the imagery of words and the polyoptics impact of real life away from the cameras. Washington Post political writer Ned Martell joins us in studio to talk Ann Romney, the equestrian, and Hillary Rosen's bitter words for mothers who don't work outside the home. And then, exploring the relationship between the principal and their body man. Ashley Parker of the New York Times sets the stage with her portrait of Romney body man, Gary Jackson, and then former Bill Clinton body man Stephen Gooden joins us to give the inside scoop. But first, I am joined by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com and production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role I played in the George W. Bush White House. Joshua, it is fantastic to have you here in Washington in studio, and thank you for bringing a special guest from the King family. So, Adam, we have the rare fourth guest on an episode of Polyoptics. I, I was down here with my family this week. I'm pleased to bring to our microphones my son, Toby King, from New York City, New York. Welcome, Toby. Hi. Hey, Toby, we've been seeing the sights in Washington, D.C. Uh, this week. Yesterday, we went to the International Spy Museum, and you learned some pretty important stuff. What are the best places to hide secret documents so your handler can pick them up in the woods around Washington, D.C.? In a bag... In a can, under a hollow tree. That would be some awesome places to connect. Under with, a rock. Under a rock. Under a rock is good. I mean, all the all the great places you can connect with Soviet spies, Toby has figured out through his trip to the International Spy and Museum. And Toby actually has a wonderful keepsake from his time at the Spy Museum, which I recommend all of our listeners. If you get to Washington, you should do what Toby and Josh and the rest of the King family have done and seen the sights. But what does your band, what does your, your wristband say? Deny everything. That is perfect polyoptics cadence. Deny everything. Deny everything. We are talking with uh, Ned Martell of the Washington Post here in Polyoptics, and uh, a rare episode indeed for all three of us, Joshua King, Adam Belmar, and Ned Martell here in the Sirius XM POTUS headquarters studios in Washington, D.C. Ned, you can tell us sort of about the experience you had in reporting about how this wonderful piece that showed up in the Post this week, uh, Cable Talker's latest status symbol, a studio at home. And that moment when Hillary Rosen is up on screen with Anderson Cooper, she's one of three different boxes. What you have is, is Mitt Romney running around the country saying, well, you know, my wife tells me that what women really care about are economic issues. And when I listen to my wife, that's what I'm hearing. Guess what? His wife has actually never worked a day in her life. She's, she's never really dealt with the kinds of economic issues that a majority of the women in this country are facing. And it's like so many people in this town, Adam, you get called in by these producers at CNN, Fox, uh, and MSNBC. You say, can you do prime time with us? And all they are trying to do is sort of talk to their niche audiences, either to the left uh, on MSNBC, uh, to the right on Fox, CNN, somewhat to the center. But, you know, Hillary Rosen probably goes in to do this, to do this hit and thinks, I've just got to do the best I can for the Romney campaign to almost preach to the converted of this audience. And uh, so many of the people who are called in night after night after night, prime time after prime time, have found an easier way to do this. Yeah, that's right. These are the new surrogates. Back, back in the old days, you can imagine how surrogates were hand-chosen. They were given talking points. These people are more loosely managed, and they, they speak more loosely and off the cuff. And that's probably why the bookers like them. They have the ability to speak, and they have the ability to go off-message, too. So it's sort of better television. Now, they become such a... a you know, commodity for the cable networks. So they, the cable networks themselves will pay to have a studio constructed in the home of some valuable talking head that 
live some distance from a studio. I mean, if you lived in downtown Washington or near it, they wouldn't bother because they could get you to any studio. Give us some examples of people we're seeing. Well, I think the the the, the person that you think of most is Sarah Palin, who has the nicest studio. Absolutely. I mean, you know, when she's at home in Alaska, in Wasilla, uh, yeah, at the the folks at Fox have enjoyed enormous uh, value in the money invested there because she can be an active part of all of the different platforms without having to get out of the house or find a studio or an uplink, which really doesn't exist for her. And time zones are playing her great advantage and Fox's too, right? Yeah, and it also gets to reinforce who she is. You're seeing her on the banks of Lake Lucille in Alaska, not in some, you know, studio like... Uh, I saw a great picture. The uh, and I don't know if it was uh, this week or earlier, it was a wide shot of that home studio where you've got what we call in the business ND or neutral density that's over the glass right behind her. So when you see Lake Lucille, it's, it's tempered no matter what time of day, uh, and it looks just right. But the windows beside it are bare like the windows in your home or my home, and that just wouldn't do for television. So they get this very, you know, she's got a natural backdrop. Others like Madeline and Carville are a, a, a sort of uh, compilation of personal elements like a flag from a, a, a football team or a school plus books. Something that really teases out who you are and why you're important and what, what, uh, what's important to you. Yeah, like you said, the neutral is gone. Like you really have this other matter behind them that reinforces who they are what their personalities yeah. are. And in the case of uh, Mary Madeline and James Carville, what their conflict is, like that he is this Cajun, raging Cajun, and she's a more proper Republican mom. And you can kind of see it in the room that they've chosen and that CNN broadcasts every time they are on from their home. Here at Polyoptics uh, on Sirius XM 124, Josh and I have found we have a very uh, eclectic audience. Of course, the common denominator being a real passion for politics and wanting to uh, understand the players and get behind the scenes. But when I first heard that comment that Josh uh, played for us from Hillary Rosen, the first thing I thought of wasn't politics. It was as a dad and as a father and as a husband, um, I thought my wife would kill me if she heard me saying or even nodding in approval that a wife who's raising children at home has never worked a day in her life. This is the kind of radioactive political speech that even when coming from a woman who is single and raising two children uh, is a bitter pill to swallow. Yeah, it's it's like... uh the gender gap that Romney was facing up until the middle of this week suddenly closed uh, and the door slammed uh, and he was able to, Eric Fernstrom uh, and and Romney and Mrs. Romney, her first tweet, was able to get back into this argument, Ned. And you've you've really been covering uh, the the Ann Romney story pretty closely. Can you sort of bring us the narrative of, of how you first found this story and, and how it ended up uh, in the Washington Post for Ann Romney, Horses are a Lifeline? Yeah, we we had not heard much from Ann Romney last fall when uh, they um, the Romneys amended their personal financial disclosure. And remember how reluctant he was to give out his tax information. It's really hard to get this kind of stuff. So they amended their personal financial disclosure to reflect a five hundred a, a loan to Ann Romney's horse trainer for an amount, and they only required to state a range, but it was a six-figure amount, 250000 to $500,000. So who is this guy who is getting money from the Romneys? Well, we w- I, went, I went to the farm. This I'm, is out in Santa Barbara, California, or, or it's Simi actually, Valley? It's, yeah, it's n- near Simi Valley, just north of Los Angeles, just north of uh, Thousand Oaks. And it's really beautiful. I mean, this amazing horse complex. And I, I went a few times and called and never heard back. And I tried the campaign, and they would never arrange anything. So I just went, and I could see what an an enormous dressage, um, state of the art, train. Oh, dressage is the what is, is the sport she's involved in. It's uh, as we as we've come to know, she she's this uh, sufferer of a chronic condition, multiple sclerosis. It is in some ways in remission because of her horseback riding. That that practice is like a therapy that in some ways helps restore her balance, that helps her feel like herself again. And when she was first diagnosed about 12 years ago, she decided with her available time, she wanted to go back to this childhood passion of horseback, horseback racing. 
Now, dressage is extremely competitive, extremely expensive, open not to everyone. Um, but we, uh, I did a record search, and I found that there was this very recent lawsuit that was, that was actually settled in October of last year in which Anne Romney herself was listed. Um, she was accused of fraud in a civil case, and it all had to do with a horse that she had sold to another equestrian that had gone lame. The details of it were interesting when I got the deposition, 250 pages. So I got to hear Anne Romney in her own words talk about this. You got the audio or just reading the transcript? Just reading the transcript. The audio is is still in Ventura County. But ultimately, you saw this this passion in more detail and also like this litigious sense that the Romneys were going to fight this charge all the way. They did a countersuit. It was really aggressive. And ultimately, with the campaign... There was a settlement, and Anne was officially dismissed by the plaintiff on the day of the settlement. So you can read into that what you will. But the larger picture is, yes, we see horseback as this, horseback riding as this miraculous therapy for a woman who's really had to suffer. But it's also a really expensive hobby. I mean, these horses cost, the one that she bought, she bought it for $105,000 in Germany, transported it to the United States, all the way to California. It was at one point one of eight she owns. She's now down to four. She sold it to this woman for $120,000. And we're not even talking about the costs of... of Stables and food it's and extraordinary expenses. Can I, can I just inter- interject for a second and say that on the very rare occasion that I get to the gym, one of my secret pleasures is watching shows on MTV like Cribs and Pimp My Ride. And... You know, no one seems to get upset that people are going to spend, you know, sixty-five, seventy-five thousand dollars to totally do out a car, right. or the the homes that are so lavishly extravagant of our cultural icons and stars, and and uh, you know that's like a way for us to live vicariously the life we'd like to. And yet, when we sort of put it through the political prism. It's, oh, well, how could they be in touch with the American people? They ride horses, and they're very expensive. And I know that's not necessarily what you're saying at all, but I get defensive not as a a wealthy person, but as, hey, this is a big, wide world, and this is a presidency that has to take into account every part of it, not just within the United States. And from the Kennedys to the almost presidency of John F. Carey and his predilection for expensive racing boats and parasailing and all of the things that come with being uh, married to Teresa Hines Carey, money is a part of American politics and family life. And if there's something that's a therapy for multiple sclerosis, money's God no bless. object. You know, I've met Ann Romney, and I think she's an amazing woman, and I, I appreciate some very down and very difficult years that she experienced trying to, you know, go through being a mother of five and, and, a, and a matriarch of a family where, you know, people weren't sure whether she was going to be able to have a viable life. That's, it became very clear that that's the case. And, and they're so grateful that this uh, hobby has become such a restorative part of her life that you can see them um, sort of sparing no expense to get her to a stable they say basically within every three to four weeks she has to ride to regain her strength, and they they'll they'll clear his schedule. They'll make they'll uh, other, they'll make sure that she has no other obligation than to get there, and uh, you know at what cost? That's like up to them. They're private citizens. They can spend their money that they've yeah. earned in legal ways and any legal way that they want. It is, however, an enormous expenditure, and they're playing in a really competitive field at the top of. Uh, this this rarefied sport and they're actually their goal is the Olympics. They do have this one horse that she co-owns called Rafalka. She wants to ride in the Olympics, or they want somebody to, no, to, to the ride this horse. The trainer that she is in business with um, is he's a finalist. He represents he's German born. He's the guy who helped her find a lot of her horses. His name is Jan Ebeling, and he is a finalist representing the United States in the Grand Prix uh, in, this month in April. And the hope is that he'll qualify in the dressage competitions in London in just a couple months, in June. And if you saw this competition, you would think you've never seen anything like it. They call it like a horse ballet. And they have the sort of compulsory movements that you're used to seeing in figure skating. There are no jumping. It's not quite as risky as, you know, the National Velvet Steeplechase. It's quite a spectacle. Uh, we, Adam just mentioned John F. Carey, Ned, uh, and we were talking 
uh, before we went on the air about uh, our mutual friend Mark Leibovich, who now writes for the New York Times, uh, really sort of made a name for himself in Washington after writing for the San Jose Mercury News for many years by profiling John and Teresa Hines Carey before the Carey campaign really got started and almost defined the way they Back in the day with Robert home. Gibbs, who's that? Was the press secretary for the Carey <laughs> and, campaign? And, and, and you know, the, the, the Careys, uh, eager to sort of make their mark in Washington and having this Washington Post uh, reporter call on them, sort of opened up their whole lives and, and exposed everything uh, about what it meant to be John Kerry and also Teresa Hines Kerry, especially and her prior marriage to Senator John Hines in Pennsylvania. And as you're talking, Ned, about the research that you had to do to create this profile of, of Ann Romney, you had to read through 250-page depositions and never got to sit down or walk in, in the chambers of of the the the, uh, the Romney residence. Now you're trying to do for the Post what Lebo did now eight years ago. Um, how difficult is it for a writer with your remit who needs that personal access to paint these pictures? And sometimes you're just handed a brick wall because times have changed and people don't want reporters in their lives as much. Do you find that? Uh, yeah, report, they absolutely because of stories like the landmark one that Mark did. Um, on on the Heinz Carey marriage, there people are very wary of letting any reporter near any you know, personal moment, much less a, an entire day or an entire week with with a candidate and his wife. So uh, you really need some patient. Uh, you need some editors who will give you time, who will believe in your idea. It's uh, with a, a story like dressage. It's a lot of head scratching. It's a real leap of faith to send somebody out to the farm and. Into the into the courthouse, uh, the clerk's office to find it was actually 15 boxes um, for this lawsuit, and in some ways, at the end of it, I thought, you know, access is sort of overrated. I really heard Ann Romney speak in sworn testimony, which is different than I probably would have gotten if the campaign had let me to sit with her for 20 minutes. So yeah, you have to you have to really do some sifting and some digging. You need editors who believe in you. And, and there is a way around access. Ned, you mentioned something uh, at the beginning of our conversation that I want to go back to. I thought it was right on the money. Uh, you were talking about how loosely held today's surrogates are and how television bookers love this. Now, I spent many years as a network television booker. And, of course, I know you're right. Um, but uh, one of the things that I, I want to try and have you peel back the onion on a bit is... And, and let's use the Hillary Rosen uh, example from this week uh, to do this. Traditionally, you have surrogates who would get talking points, who would be fully briefed. Um, and yet here you have someone who is clearly part of the Democratic establishment. She's a regular at the White House. She's very deeply involved uh, and has friends at every level uh, of Washington society. And um, and she's an active uh voice in the in the in the private sector and in communications and consulting but as you mentioned she's just running in she's sitting down maybe without a ton of uh advance notice to sit and do a primetime interview she's speaking from the gut she's literally as josh painted uh thinking about who her target audience is and she is saying what comes to her mind and she probably fully believed everything that she said so my question to you is um as we think about surrogates and we think about the availability of just throwing people into a chair, shouldn't we expect to get this kind of raw, real reaction and it's not nearly as contemplated and scripted as it once was? And don't we all benefit from that? Uh, yes. I mean, I, I, I do think that any way a truth can come out, then, then I'm all for it. Uh, I think that there was a provocative contrast to be made and you know this cultural clash the mommy wars thing is fodder for newspapers to have really thoughtful discussions about this this thing that is right below the surface but experienced in your own homes you know these and, and in blogs that that many moms consult every day so to have that in a political campaign and a political uh, discussion makes sense to me Let's we not... already did soccer moms we did defense moms i mean Mom's 3.0 for 2012, Josh, has just been waiting to come up. And the fact that a single mom uh, really 
lit the fuse on this thing. I love it uh, because even in, even as quickly as the, the 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 Obama campaign came out and repudiated the comments, faster even than the Romney campaign did to come out and say this isn't right. What is going on here? Um, I've got to imagine there were some high fives in the background going. Yeah, somebody's saying it. There's some there's something extra weird this week about uh, the fallout for Hillary Rosen where you have. I think it was Axelrod talking to John mm-hmm. King yesterday saying, wait a minute, she works for you, not right. for me. Exactly. Like, why am I getting blamed for a CNN employee's uh, discussion of something that the Obama administration didn't sanction, quickly disassociated? Hey, would you be with? surprised? Uh, you may be surprised to know through uh, Ned's reporting how much it costs to play in the world of dressage and to be an equestrian. Wouldn't we all be just a little bit interested to know how much Hillary Rosen gets paid by CNN to sit around and do this? It's a six-figure number, folks, and it's north probably, I would guess, of $150,000 a year. And one of the complications for CNN is that the people they pay, like Hillary Rosen, are they even fully understanding who else pays them? And what, oh, did you just what their step on conflict of interest? What their obli- uh, you know, uh, in, in my newsroom, that would be a conflict of interest, but I'm, I'm not sure that... A poli- it's a great point, don't you think, Josh? A, a media consultant has the same obligations. I mean, uh, on MSNBC, which has a clear uh, uh, editorial slant and uh, to the left, uh, Dana Milbank, who's churning out editorials for the Washington Post, used to cover the Clinton White House, was one of the best reporters uh, on the White House beat, uh, is now sort of echoing everything Al Sharpton says when he goes on, on Sharpton's air a lot. And so the conflicts are, are all there, uh, very prominent to me. Um, and, and, it make, and, and this week, you know, adding to the weirdness that Ned just talked about, uh, it almost benefits David Axrod and Jim Messina to have a sister soldier foil on their other extreme to say, we don't agree with this, and to almost allow them and President Obama, who said it in a one-on-one interview as well, to pivot a little bit more to the center, to almost use someone that they have created on the left to keep their message more centrist. It's very confusing to me. I've been thinking about it all week. I've been thinking about it before this episode that, well, we heard the maybe the Romney campaign or some critic of Hillary Rosen yesterday was talking about how often she had been to the White House and what was she doing there and was that access a sign a tacit endorsement of from the White House of what she's been saying on the airwaves. And that's a good question. Also, when she goes to the White House, who is she speaking on behalf of? Are there other people in her firm that employs her, other clients, whose agenda she brings to them? It's very confusing. And it didn't used to be that confusing when it, when the surrogates were essentially other political players, other people who lived um, under electoral accountability or whatever standard you want to say that would prevent them from holding lots of interest that you couldn't For see. For $50,000 a month, I sure hope so, on behalf of her clientele. But in any event, uh, we, we only just begin to get into how creative a web we have built for ourselves in Washington, D.C., politics, uh, transcending from the presidency of the United States through campaigns and into the network newsrooms and back into our living rooms, how we, we most often uh, perceive the optics of, of television and politics. And, uh, you know, Ned, I'm so excited that you can. I hope you'll come back and join us again throughout 2012. My pleasure, sure. Uh, and, we, and we still haven't even touched on this amazing Leonard Boswell uh, <laughs> Iowa congressman and his family retell how they fought off a gun-wielding robber by Ned Martell. We'll put it up, up on polyoptics.com and hopefully we'll talk about it next time. But it's in cold blood without any without any fatalities. Great story. Exactly. And it reminded me of what you used to tell me about the Iowa sets, the, the backdrops you used to make for candidates. It's very hay bale and red, red barn. I loved it. <laughs> Come back then. I'd be happy to. Thanks for having me. So, Adam, a few weeks ago, as Mitt Romney, Governor Romney, was beginning his western swing after the Florida primary, he was headed to uh, South Dakota, I think, Idaho, and then points farther. He was still in a nip-and-tuck race with Rick Santorum, but I think we've all said on Polyoptics that he was always going to be the likely nominee. 
we were joined on the tarmac from, I think, Sioux Falls with, by Ashley Parker of the New York Times, who gave us, uh, through her Instagrams, blogs, and print paper stories, this wonderful picture of the Romney campaign that she'd painted. And now I think through her access that she's and the relationships that she's created with the Romney traveling staff, uh, she is perfectly poised to cover the general election campaign. And one of the ways that you do that is by creating relationships with people who are around Governor Romney. And one of them is Garrett Jackson, who's the Governor Romney's personal aide. There's always a personal aide on every uh, significant campaign and then into the White House. Ashley, who joins us now uh, from a brief uh, respite during the campaign uh, to tell us about the the piece that she did, not only on Garrett Jackson and how this personal aide differs from prior personal aides, but she wrote the definitive piece last cycle on Reggie Love, President Obama's personal aide from the campaign. Welcome back to Polyoptics, Ashley. Hey, thanks for having me on. We loved this video, and, and obviously, you know, you've, you've peppered it with a lot of understanding of how Garrett uh, has this wonderful interplay and supports Governor Romney, but take us through it and tell us about this relationship and what you've seen of the personal aide, the body man, as we call him in the business. Sure. So one thing, actually, if you saw the video, you see uh, Garrett Jackson doing a pretty spot-on impression of... Um, Louis Armstrong, you know, what a wonderful world. Um, one thing that didn't make it into my story, but it's probably worth mentioning, is that Garrett is great at voices. He actually did some of, he's from Mississippi, and he did some of the campaign robocalls um, to Mississippi when that primary came up. And he also does some pretty good impressions of the traveling press corps that he uses to amuse Governor Romney on long days. <laughs> he actually did Romney's voice for robocalls? Uh, he, he did the robocalls in Mississippi. But did he do them as himself, or was he... Oh, no, 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 he, he did them as himself, as a Mississippi native who, you know how they'll have surrogates or different people do sure. calls. Uh, you know, I thought it was it was such an interesting element of the video, and people will find that, uh, of course, at polyoptics.com. We have a link to uh, to the New York Times uh, where, where Ashley has posted this. But he does um, give us a sense, uh, when he's playing around, when he's singing for us a little bit, that he really has to keep the energy up and, and be a foil in many ways to keep the governor going. Is that what you found? Yeah, so I mean, the role of the body man, as you mentioned, it kind of it's it's a very it's it's like a relationship, and so it differs between the person who's doing it and each candidate. Each candidate wants something different from their body man. So, for instance, John Kerry's body man, who actually now works in the Obama White House, with John Kerry, John Kerry, he was dubbed sort of half buddy and half butler, and so he sort of served John some of John Kerry's needs. With Mr. Romney, um, Mr. Romney is actually pretty calm and level on the campaign trail most of the time, but one of the things he gets frustrated about is either being late or just when stuff gets added to his schedule and after a long day he's asked to make, you know, a couple more fundraising calls or call a couple more donors. Um, so Garrett is the one, exactly, who has to be at his side and know how to kind of cheer him up. And Garrett told me he has sort of three fail-safe ways to do that. One is to suggest a call to Governor Romney's wife, Anne, that will always cheer him up and it will sort of keep him busy for 15 or 20 minutes. Another is he shows him funny YouTube videos or funny tweets from the trail. And the third is that he can kind of ply him with campaign gossip. Apparently, Governor Romney has a bit of a nosy side. And so Garrett can distract him on a bad day by telling him who's dating who or who's flirting with who. And and he's also, as a departure from previous body man, you know, we heard sort of Reggie Love did a series of exit interviews when he finally left the White House. But the body men are usually uh, tight-lipped when it comes to the comes to sort of expressing themselves, and yet they've uh, employed Garrett almost as a, a, a resource of the campaign as a blogger, haven't they? Yeah, they have. I think actually in early March, Garrett started doing a blog about, you know, what he called his life with the gov. Um, and part of that, the Romney campaign, their communication shop does nothing by coincidence. And so basically, you know, they kind of build it as, oh, Garrett has this great perch, but what they really wanted was you know, Governor Romney still, to use a word that they hate, is having a bit of trouble humanizing himself. And so they sort of felt like if they could have this young, energetic, loyal aide speaking on Governor Romney's behalf and showing in a very innocuous, very scrubbed, very G-rated way that Governor Romney loves cupcakes or, look, here's a video of Governor Romney joking around or eating a fast food breakfast, that it might help to humanize uh, the candidate. And before we let you go and get back to your covering of the Romney campaign, Ashley, you know, you, you, you've almost created a niche of understanding uh, 
body men and you did a piece uh, <laughs> uh as you said that's you, for a whole you, nother you, episode of polyoptics oh <laughs> four you covered marvin nicholson uh 2008 you covered reggie love now you're doing garrett jackson the the quick contrast between a reggie love and a garrett jackson um i mean reggie love was kind of this raffish figure a cool younger brother who was mischievous and um I mean, in a way, he was a big contrast to uh, to President Obama, to Senator Obama. Um, I mean, he was just very, very cool. I, I wrote a piece, but then Reggie kind of took off and became famous basically just for being really cool in his own right. Um, Garrett is a really great guy, too. He is maybe a little more low-key, a little more earnest, um, a little less, I, I hesitate to say a little less cool because he's really great, but he sort of doesn't quite have the elan of Reggie Love. But well, there's you know, something Garrett, that being 6'8 helps helps being, so. Yeah, and having played basketball at Duke, right? Although Garrett is a licensed pilot, it's worth noting, so. What kind of, what kind of, is it uh, aircraft, fixed wing? What's, what's the story there? He, um, he was actually in the process of joining uh, the Air Force before he took the job with Governor Romney, and he's just always been obsessed with planes and aviation. So I think he's mainly piloted pretty small planes, but he did actually fly Governor or he co-piloted Governor Romney back on a, on a four-seater one time, and Governor Romney is not the calmest of flyers. So Garrett's always telling him, oh, no, this is just ground wind. This isn't a big deal. That strange noise is just the wing. That's very natural. So he, he does sort of fill that role, too. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, I really love the job that you do out there and that you take the time to join us on Polyoptics. You can follow her on Twitter at Ashley R. Parker. Uh, thanks for being here on Polyoptics this week. Thanks for having me on. Joshua, uh, we have uh, in our midst, in the studio, in addition to Toby King, a former body man to President Bill Clinton. Introduce him, won't you? Yeah, so uh, I think Stephen Gooden, 20 years ago, uh, we started working for Governor Governor Bill Clinton. (laughs) And unlike a lot of these body men who sort of come... uh, come into this job is the first thing they do in a campaign or early on in a process. You'd known Bill Clinton for a long time before you eventually became his body man, succeeding Andrew Friendly, who was the mm-hmm. first body man in the White House. Tell us how your relationship with Governor Clinton started and what and what finally brought you to your opportunity to work sure. with him in the White House. Well, it's daunting to think that our uh, political career could be in college at this point. But, um, <laughs> you know, I joined the campaign in uh, December of 91, which was in the very early days of New Hampshire. And that, the first time that I had the opportunity to meet then-Governor Clinton, I picked him up as part of a two-car motorcade in a uh, snowstorm, a blizzard in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And, of course, I was driving one of the two cars in addition to everything else that I was doing. And then I was very fortunate enough to um, survive and, and work through a number of jobs in the campaign and end up in as you know, a motor a presidential motorcade, which is about 50 to 75 cars, depending on which country you're in and what's going on. And to see the experience um, of him as a candidate and to see him grow as a person and to be part of uh, such a such a, uh, a movement uh, was really an honor for me. And one of the observations I was going to make is that um, things do change over time about about these jobs and the individuals. But one thing that doesn't change is that the opportunity to be in that role is just a tremendous honor for anybody who, to to get to know these historical figures, whether they do or do not become president. You know, Mitt Romney will be the Republican nominee, and he will be a significant figure in history. Not as significant if he were to become pregnant, president, but um, uh, you know, so, so the opportunity to get to know people like that as humans as well as 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 candidates is pretty impressive. Uh, we, on polyoptics, we we. We do what a lot of other shows don't do, which is we talk about process. Uh, and I'd love to hear from you, uh, you know, the people that you and I both worked with, uh, President Clinton, uh, Nancy Hernreich, the director of Oval Office Operations, uh, the chief of staff um, at that time, I think it was Leon Panetta when you, mm-hmm. t- when you took your job, Betty Curry, the president's secretary. Uh, what happens when sort of the baton is passed from Andrew to you and you start to meet... Uh, um, Lou Merletti, the head of the president's Secret Service detail, mm-hmm. Connie Mariano, the president's doctor, and you start to fold into this uh, secure package of mm-hmm. running the president's life or well, helping to run the president's one, life. One observation is that um, Leon, you know Leon, he has, he's a very serious guy, very smart guy. He has the best laugh of almost anybody I've met. And um, interestingly enough, Leon Panetta and I both started on the White House staff the same week. 
So even though I'd been part of this world, I hadn't worked in the White House. And as you know, that's a very, it's an, it's the crucible of politics. I mean, it's, it's much more intense than anything you can imagine. And so we just bonded immediately uh, because he, we both were looking at each other like, what have we done? What have we walked into? This place is crazy. This pace is manic. And, um, you know, thankfully, he had his great laugh and, you know, very early on helped me kind of realize the power of a sense of humor to help you get through what can somewhat, sometimes be otherwise paralyzing situations. So that was terrific to do. Um, the other piece, I mean, you mentioned one of the interesting things about about the, uh, the, body, the body man in, in the White House is that the White House has all of these support structures around the president and all of them have redundancy except for the president's aide. So, you know, Lou Merletti, you mentioned, is the head of the presidential protective detail of the Secret Service. Well, there are four, you know, special agents in charge who sit underneath him, so, and a deputy. So whenever, you know, obviously the head of the Secret Service protective detail is with the president in key moments, but when he's in the Oval Office or doing something that's less risk, they have to also do some management jobs, so there are people to spell them. Connie Mariano, the White House physician, there's, there are two other physicians to spell her. The White House military aides, there are five of them, one from each branch of the service. One of them's always on duty, but there are four other people to spell them. The president said, there's only one of you. And I used to say, it's like Tigger, you're the only one. <laughs> and I mean, that's, it's, a, it's one of the greatest things about the job and one of the worst things at the same time. It's great because you get to soak up all of these experiences. And frankly, it serves the principle because you are the only person who experiences everything that they experience. Everybody else gets a little snippet or a little window into what's happening with them. You go through from sunrise to sunset to beyond. You go with them through everything. And there's there's value in that and kind of really knowing their psychology and their situation and what they're experiencing. I would have no other uh, insight into what you're talking about uh, than what pictures we see and stories have been written, except for the fact that I got thrust into the the Bush White House in 2007. I spent almost two years there and struck up a personal friendship, not just out of necessity, but I was really lucky. Jared Weinstein, who was uh, President George W. Bush's uh, second and final body man, POTUS Mm -hmm. aide, Mm -hmm. was a young, incredibly energetic fellow who had great leadership qualities. And he was someone who rallied the troops. Everybody understood. And and, and this is where I want to sort of ask you a question about the technological leap forward uh, since you served and when, Josh, you served. Um, It's all about Blackberries and email. And, you know, Mm -hmm. the president doesn't have that. But if you're trying to communicate something in real time, okay, we're ready, we need to go early, or is the president, what's he thinking, or there are a couple things about the upcoming event that we're about to do that someone's got to brief the boss. And you Mm -hmm. know, even as I served as a deputy assistant to the president, I didn't have a lot of time or access to brief the president, but the presidential aide, knowing the president as he does, the ability to take a second to say something well-timed and well-placed to be appreciated by the president or to tell you, look, you better figure out a way to figure this out because the boss is coming. He's landing. <laughs> He's just going to move, baby. Yeah. Um, talk to us for a second because I know this 24-hour-a-day uh, job, just having seen it internally, but how do you keep that conversation going where you are really this titular link between all those other people who need to reach the boss and they're not all going through the chief of staff sometimes sometimes they're coming straight to you yeah i mean i i hope it doesn't sound too puffed up to say that i think the smarter staff people are those who realize that yeah (laughs) because you know if you ask the right question at the wrong time you you might get the wrong answer so I think that the role of the body person as a barometer of of the principal and um, and being of service to senior staff who have things that they need to get done, um, and you know maybe being able to tell them mm, I don't think this is the right time to ask about that, mm-hmm. or I understand the importance of that, um, and maybe if you ask maybe if we ask about it this way, or let me tell them that this piece of information first, and then they'll be more receptive to what you're trying to say, not in a manipulative way, but just in a way that um, that and I think this is one of the things that people don't understand about the job because there's a lot of talk about making peanut butter sandwiches and and hanging out and, and shooting carrying baskets. sharpies. But you know, I think I think the sharpies, peop- Purell, 
Breathments. I mean, I, it's a lot more than that. That's kind of what we see and yeah, hear about. But I wish I had gotten an endorsement deal from Sharpie, right? Like that's that would be the holy grail of the uh, being the body man. But you know, if if you're doing the job well, and and uh, I think that the people that that I was fortunate enough to work around and in between did it well, and and I'm sure that um, these other folks are too. You you also understand not just those ridiculously tiny, minute details, but you understand the bigger picture. What do you do when Josh King comes to you uh, with you know a crazy, diagram, crazy, stupid ideas, or he's got a great idea, did. right? And, and but they're written down, right? I mean, we're talking about Presidential Records Act. People are always handing things. To who? To you, yeah. not to the president. I mean, staff sec in the White House manages the paper flow, but in the real world, who is it? It's you. It's the body man. It's it's the person who ultimately is the uh, interlocutor between staff and the real world. Mm-hmm. How do you keep all of that going? And how do you imagine it's changed for your counterparts who are now carrying digital assets like Blackberries oh, and iPhones? Good, yeah, that's a good question. Because I mean, I was very much had a foot in the analog and the and the digital world, and mostly in the analog. I think because as, as Josh would attest, I think the White House was lagging. And in, in, uh, well, Joshua King made an art form out of, of creating set designs and ideas has come to life on graph paper. Absolutely. Well, you should have seen Stephen in the conference room of Air Force One after every stop. You know, we would sort of say, yeah, you know, bring on a beer or a scotch and let's crank up a movie. Poor Stephen had to sit there with his with his pens out and catalog everything by hand that the president was given at that stop, right? Yeah, I mean, it'd be great to have digital tools to capture. You know, you could snap a, a digital image and, and, you know, put it into a record and be done. So hopefully there's a lot less drudgery w- with a job now. I mean, the principal vehicle for the job when I was there, and I assume that this is was the case for, for you and, and probably continues to some degree today, is the briefing book. So the president's briefing book is like the, you know, the plan for the day. And he gets one and the aide gets one. And you're and basically, in a nutshell, your job is to drive him through that day. And m- more importantly, for you to stay ahead of him, right? Because he's in the moment. And so you've got to look around the corner that he can't see. And um, so, you know, to your point, does he have time to read the 10-page briefing memo? Probably not. Are you going to read it? And are you going to highlight the three things that he needs to know about it and either underline them or like tell him when he really has five seconds to find out about it? You absolutely have to do that. And you have to be... Um, knowledgeable enough to know what he really needs to know and you've been with him enough to know what's already in his head a lot of times so don't waste his time telling things he already knows Stephen Gooden is our guest here on Polyoptics Series XM 120 former former body man to President William Jefferson Clinton and a close friend and colleague of my co-host Joshua King who's here in studio at Sirius XM headquarters in Washington DC today along with our special guest Toby King but I want to ask you um, uh, Stephen, when you are on Air Force One and you have Josh King with you along with everyone else, will you explain the intersection of the POTUS aide and the trip director? Because really, you you talked a little bit about this in terms of motorcades and so forth, and Josh has got people at sites and he's working with Advance very closely, but it all funnels together, especially when you're on the road, Mm -hmm. to you and your counterpart in the advanced team. Help us understand that interplay and and, and where the trip director and the the POTUS aide become the the critical mass to support the president abroad. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, first of all, they have to work very closely together. And I think think we were helped out by the fact that we we had strong personal relationships from the campaign, and we were socially friends, a lot of us. And so, you know, we kind of, we understood each other and how it worked. And that's, if you don't have that background, you need to get that very quickly. And um, I think the interplay is that the, the aid becomes much more literally the body. I mean, it, when you're with the president in the Oval Office or going to events around Washington, D.C., you have to be more a little more outwardly focused. When you go and the trip director's with you, you can recede into focusing more on the satellite of the president himself, and the trip director takes on the role of how this all fits together, with the president being an important ingredient. But you know, you've got the press, the traveling press, which is a huge um, piece of what happens on those trips. You've got the advance teams on the ground. You've got uh, staff that are, staff that are traveling on the plane, and just hurting them takes a huge amount of energy and focus, keeping them out of the shot. 
That's <laughs> my... keeping, keeping Gene Sperling from wandering into the backdrop <laughs> on his cell phone while the president's making a speech or fill in the blank, whichever great yep. official. And I'm sure that's still an issue now because yeah. Gene is back in the White House, of course. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's a lot, there are a lot of moving pieces and the trip director has to kind of, you know, take on this broader view for all those pieces. And you can, as the aide, you can focus more narrowly on the president. Stephen, you were talking earlier about um, the redundancy that you that the other functions around the secure package have: the president's physician, secret service, um, uh, the military aid, and they also have a ton of training, as we found out in our conversation, Adam, a few weeks ago with Dan Emmett of the Secret Service. Uh, the person who comes in to the role of personal aid and trip director comes in probably as a former campaign staffer, a political appointee. Can you share with us any anecdote of a moment when either in a back door of the Kremlin or in uh, Arkansas or some place where it was only you and President Clinton and you said to yourself, maybe at a moment of high stress, I'm not sure I have enough training for this moment or (laughs) uh, there's a lot of things closing in on me at this point. Uh, There are two two that popped to mind, one that was kind of light and one that was kind of grave. I'll go with the light one. Um, you know, the, the, Ashley was mentioning um, a lot of times the aide ends up being helping to lighten the mood or helping to entertain the principal or the president, whomever it may be. So in one instance, we were on a trip to the Ukraine, and as frequently happens, we were hosted at a guest palace. Uh, president Kuchma was the president at the time. We were at Kuchma's guest palace. Uh, but lo and behold, there wasn't enough room at the guest palace for the entire traveling entourage. And so I was the only staff person in, in the guest house, uh, you know, aside from these, the kind of protective detail and the, and the doctors and such. And the president and Mrs. Clinton were both on this particular trip. And I'd kind of um, bizarrely prided myself on not, President Clinton loves to play cards. He loves to play hearts, as I think is pretty widely known. And I mean, he, he would always take a Marine One flight and see how many hands he could get into one flight out to Andrews Air Force Base and try to break his record. But I always, I was like, that's his thing. That's not my thing. That's his time to, it's the one time where I, he can have me not be in his face about something. So I'm going to respect and preserve and not inject myself into his card games. Well, here we were at the guest palace and there was nobody else to play cards with. <laughs> and Mrs. Clinton was like, I'm not going to play cards with you. And so she she wrote out a little, uh, you know, presidential directive um, on a napkin there from the guest palace saying, Stephen Gooden is hereby commanded to play hearts with President Bill Clinton. So I never had any training in playing cards. There's nothing about that. But you, you, you mentioned training, and there is no formal training for this job. One reason may be because it is different for each person and each individual, and it conforms to it. Um, but, you know, you have, to kind of, you have to kind of make it up as you go along a little bit. I have a final question for you as we uh, we bid you farewell here. One of the, the most fun photographs that we tend to see that gets out uh, for people who are really interested is that there is a peephole in the White House that lets <laughs> people see into the Oval Office because no one wants to go in when they're not uh, needed and or stepping in on something that they shouldn't be moving in on. Mm-hmm. And then again, there are only a few people on the planet who could even look through it, let alone go through the door. And you were one of them. Were you ever that guy looking through the peephole trying to gauge? All the time. Oh, that's if, a great picture. If you. it weren't for the peephole, it, you know, it would be impossible. And, um, you know, the, what the peephole does is make you a pretty decent um, surveyor of body language mm. because you can't hear what's going on in there, and obviously you shouldn't. Um, but, you know, you can get a real sense of what's, you know, whether it's a good time to come in or what's happening or you, you develop your indicators of, of, of mood and temperament and, and other things like that. And I will say that, the you know, I guarded the people with pretty stern, I mean, even to senior staff. Because your and office is right members. outside that door, right in the in the outer Oval Office suite. suite and, uh, and from my experience, people knew when Don't. you walked in the outer Oval, you stopped to talk to the presidential aide. Uh, before you did anything else. Yeah, I mean, it's bad enough that they have to be under a microscope, you know, in their own office because of the people. So, yeah, keeping that keeping that limited and keeping it uh, for just a few eyes was a good thing. He is the president of Red River Strategies, and you can find him on the web at redriverstrategies.com. But we are excited and really pleased to have had you here, uh, Stephen Gooden on Polyoptics. Thanks for joining us. Thank, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Stephen. Josh, this this has been a great week, uh, a great polyoptics week, and we say that a lot, but uh, 
you know, as things start to settle down, and we've had this great conversation on this show uh, with both of our guests, and Toby has dutifully sat here and listened and appreciated, uh, what what uh, what do you see uh, for the, the weeks to come? I mean, you're going to be going back to New York. We'll be here in Washington, but we, we think about this period of crystallization in the presidential campaigns. The president is going to be out uh, doing a Summit of the Americas, but what, what, do you, what do you, is this, are we going to lull for a little bit, do you think? Well, Adam, this this usually is a, a quiet time because the Republicans have spent so much money uh, fighting each other through the primary and caucus process. The Democrats don't want to spend any more money than they have to in April. They want to save it for September, October, and November. Uh, and yet, um, and and this is a time for a presumptive nominee like Mitt Romney to begin looking over the dossiers of potential vice presidential candidates. I think you'll hear more about that, the so-called veep stakes coming up in, in the coming weeks. Um, but this should be the quiet time. And yet this week, dominated so much by the comments that Hillary Rosen made uh, and and President Obama's retort. President Obama still has to be president of the United States. He has to go down to uh, Cartagena, Colombia for the Summit of the Americas. So I don't think there's going to be any let up. It's a, it's a different ballgame this One year. One thing I'm looking for is whether uh, both the campaign, the White House, and the Romney camp are going to step up their game in a way that, that you and I did in protecting the president when it comes to open microphones. We, we saw some some video that came out in a preamble of a sit-down interview with Sean Hannity That's that right. Governor Romney had. Uh, of course, President Obama has been bitten before. These unguarded moments, uh, are, there's an expectation of privacy, or at least there should be. And protecting your principal, protecting the President of the United States in those moments is very important. It has national security implications. It has political implications. But more than anything else, from an optics perspective, you see and appreciate a different person than the one that they're putting forward for our appreciation on television. And Toby, I think you'll agree, you don't want to get caught talking out of school, do you? Maybe. Maybe, because you want to deny everything. Don't you want to deny everything, Toby? No, I would get kicked out of school. But seriously, the open mic is a problem, isn't it? It, it is. And, you know, uh, if you are an ad maker, uh, if you're Jim Margolis uh, making ads for Barack Obama, you have enough audio in the can from Governor Romney to make uh, two dozen uh, embarrassing spots about uh, about Governor Romney based on the things that Romney himself has said. I truly believe that there's a reset button, that that, that stuff will be seen uh, in the past. And But going forward, uh, Hillary Rosen says... One line that gets picked up uh, by the Romney campaign, she never worked a day in her life, and it becomes fodder for uh, for back and forth all week long. Uh, Mitt Romney sits down with Sean Hannity, talks about his horses, and that gets picked up. So uh, you cannot, I mean, this is unfortunately an era in which candidates and their staffs, Eric Frenstrom and the Etch-A-Sketch, need to completely watch everything they say and particularly the microphones. Yeah, beware the microphone and uh, beware the political ad. We're going to see a lot of contrast ads coming out, not only between these two candidates, but between uh, Mitt Romney and his former foes in the Republican ranks. Hey, he's a lot like Rick and bringing out uh, a lot of these criticisms that you've talked about. Great to have you in studio. Great episode of Polyoptics. Toby, I hope you'll replace your dad in weeks to come. You're always welcome here. Uh, you catch us here on Politics of the United States, POTUS, Sirius XM. Josh, until next time. Until next time, Adam.